This morning we're going to complete our study of chapter 5 of the London Confession. We're going to complete our study of Providence. We're going to consider paragraphs 5, 6, and 7. And this material is found in the back of the hymn book, the Trinity, Blue Trinity Hymnal, on page 673. Before we start, let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our study of the faith and the things that are most surely believed among us. Father, thank you once again for our forefathers and for the great light that you gave them concerning the teaching of Scripture about the manner in which you control and rule this world. We pray as we study this again today that we would follow them only as far as they follow Scripture and that you would send us the Holy Spirit to give us light, but also write the truth on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, today we're going to complete our study of providence. We've already considered the general concept of providence in paragraph one, the unfathomable mysteries of providence in paragraphs two to four. Now, this morning, I want to consider the moral discrimination, God's moral discrimination in providence in paragraphs 5 and 6. And finally, the redemptive focus of providence, how God takes care of his people in paragraph 7. Now, again, this material is found in the uh, Blue Trinity on page 673. First of all, the divine moral discrimination. God does discriminate in providence, but that discrimination is moral. The Bible says clearly that he distinguishes saints from sinners, the righteous from the wicked. The Bible clearly asserts that he distinguishes the righteous and the wicked. There are many contrasts in Psalms and in Proverbs and this distinction is clear and repeated and emphatic with many different nuances. And the confession of faith features and highlights two aspects of this moral discrimination and divine providence between the righteous and the wicked. First of all, it features and highlights how he chastens his saints. But then it also features and highlights that's in paragraph 5. In paragraph 6, it also features and highlights how he hardens the wicked. He chastens the saints, but he hardens the wicked. Now, these are not the only ways in which God discriminates between the righteous and the wicked in providence, but these are the ways that our confession has featured or highlighted. So, first of all, in paragraph 5, God chastens saints. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength 
of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends. So that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. Now the bulk of this paragraph comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. But the last phrase, the conclusion, does not come from the Westminster Confession and is not in the Westminster Confession. Once again, that conclusion comes from the first London Baptist Confession of Faith and Article 5. So, in its following of the Westminster Confession, they answer the question, how, and the question, why. How does God chasten his children, and why? How does he do it? Sometimes leaves us to the influence of our own remaining sin. And why does he do it? The Westminster Confession makes clear from the biblical support that they cite that they stress two reasons or two divine motives. That is to humble the saints and to sanctify the saints. So Westminster opens up the manner and the motivation. The manner and the motive of this divine chastening of his children. And then the London Confession adds the conclusion which it pastes together from the first London Confession. So we have the manner, the motive, and the conclusion. First of all, the manner. How does God chasten his children? This is how he does it. Does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their hearts. Sometimes for our own good, God, our loving Father, in his wisdom and grace, leads us to the influence of temptation and the influence of our own remaining corruption. And for us, this is what it means to be afflicted and chastened. Now, what is the motive? Why does God do this? The Westminster Confession divides its support under two headings, indicating that they highlight two reasons or designs or motivations that our Father has in this chastening of his children. He does it to teach us and to train us. He does it to develop in us greater humility and greater holiness. Humility and holiness. Why does he leave us to seasons of temptation? and to times when our own remaining corruption seems to flare up. He does it to humble us, and he does it to make us holy. Now, how do they support the idea that he does it to humble us? They say, to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness 
of their hearts. The Westminster Assembly cited two examples of this, from the life of David and from the life of Hezekiah. But the London Confession, in citing its support, only uses the example of Hezekiah that the Westminster Assembly used. First of all, the Westminster Assembly appeals to 2 Samuel 24, 1 and 2. And again, we read, the anger of Jehovah was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. And then the primary example cited both by the uh, Westminster Assembly and by our own London Confession is from 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 25 and 26, and also verse 31, which comes from the example of the life of Hezekiah. And we read there in 2 Chronicles 32, 25 and 26, but Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore there was wrath on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. Notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of God came not on them in the days of Hezekiah. And then down in verse 31, how be it? In the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, Here's the phrase, God left him to try him that he might know all that was in his heart. They take the phrase, thus oftentimes leave for a season his own children. They take it from that verse, verse 31. God left him to try him. There's, there's a time when God withdraws the restraining influence, even of sanctifying grace in order to reveal to us the pride and remaining corruption that's found in our hearts in order to humble us and to show us the depth of our remaining sin and to keep us from carnal pride. He uses our temptations. He even uses our sins that remain in us to teach us the depth of our own remaining corruption to deliver us from self-righteousness and pride that thinks ourselves better than others, that thinks that we are invulnerable to falling into sin. He teaches us this until we learn to say from the heart, there but for the grace of God go I. Do you see a Christian overtaken in a fault? Don't think in pride. How could he or she do something like that? I'd never do anything like that. Watch, watch what you say. Watch your heart. Be careful. You that are spiritual, Paul says, restore such a brother or sister with gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you also be tempted. If you are in pride and self-righteousness saying, I could never do anything like that, the truth of the matter is you don't know your own heart as well as you should know it. 
And there are times when God leads us to seasons of temptation or even to falling into sin, our own remaining sin, in order to teach us just how serious our remaining corruption is to humble us so that we don't walk in pride. But secondly, the Westminster Confession and for being followed by our London Confession affirms that God does this not only to teach us the depth of our own corruption and to humble us, but he also does it to, quote, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependent for their support on himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin. So he does it to increase holiness and for other just and holy ends. Now, in order to support this, the Westminster Assembly cites the Psalms and the case of Peter and the case of Paul. They cite Psalm 73, my feet had almost slipped. They say throughout the whole Psalm. They cite Psalm 77, verses 1 to 10, where the psalmist in trial and affliction turns to God in prayer. They cite the case of Peter in Mark 14, 66 to 72, and then the restoration passage in John 21, 15 to 17, to show how the Lord used Peter's denial in order to sanctify Peter and to increase his commitment to serve the Lord. But what our confession uh, stresses in its biblical support is only one of the passages cited in the Westminster Assembly, and that's 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 to 9, the case of Paul. How that God used affliction and a sense of weakness and hindrance in Paul's life in order to teach him greater holiness. We read in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, And by reason of the exceeding greatness of the revelation, that I should not be exalted over much, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, that I should not be exalted over much. Concerning this thing, I besought the Lord three times that it might depart from me, and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It says that God used this in my life to bring me to the place where I now have a greater sense of my total dependence upon Christ in order to serve him, and that the power to serve him comes totally from him. If it were left to me, I could do nothing. And so God used that affliction in his life to bring him to greater dependence on Christ and on his power. He grew in holiness and grace through his suffering, affliction, and felt weakness. Which brings us then to the conclusion. The conclusion. And this, as I say, comes from the first London Confession. So that whatever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. The phrase that they added from the first London 
was supported by the writers of the first London Confession by appealing to a text that also our own confession cites, and that's Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And we know that to them that love God, all things work together for good, even to them that are called according to his purpose. Everything that happens in our lives, and this is the conclusion, because he chastens us by leaving us to temptations and sins for a while, to leave us to the influence of our remaining corruption. He does this to humble us. He does this to make us more holy and more dependent on him. Everything that happens in our lives, even our temptations, even our remaining corruption, this doesn't make remaining corruption good, but it means that even our remaining corruption, God designs for our good. to train us in humility and to increase our holiness. And they say, for many other just and holy purposes. God has many purposes for this. They feature only two, to develop in us humility and greater holiness. Which means, even though we may never understand why God is bringing this or allowing this or ordaining this in our lives, We must walk by faith and we must trust him that he knows what he's doing and that he will use it, whatever it is, for his glory and for our benefit. We have to trust him that he means it for good. So that's paragraph five where they feature God chastening the saints by leaving them for a period of time to the influence of temptation and remaining sin with the motive of humbling and sanctifying. And the conclusion, everything works together for good. All right, second issue that's highlighted here with regard to this divine discrimination, moral discrimination between the righteous and the wicked is in paragraph six, they highlight the fact that although he chastens the righteous, his beloved children, he hardens sinners. As for those wicked and ungodly men whom God, as a righteous judge, for former sin does blind and harden, from them he not only withholds his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon their hearts, but sometimes also withdraws the gifts which they had and exposes them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves under those means which God uses for the softening of others. What a frightening paragraph that is. How God hardens sinners. Now, in this paragraph, and in the scripture cited, 
uh, by the Baptist assembly to support it. Our Baptist fathers follow very closely the Westminster Assembly and the Westminster Confession of Faith. Not only in the wording, but also in the citing of scriptural support. They use most of the biblical support cited by the Westminster Assembly. They only slightly abridge it in a few places. And so by following the manner in which they present the scriptural support, you can sort of follow the development of their thought. And so first of all, they support the just cause of divine hardening of sinners. Ungodly men whom God as a righteous judge for former sins does blind and harden. And then, secondly, they open up the sad or tragic display of this divine hardening. And they list and support four ways in which scripture displays this judicial hardening of sinners. And thirdly, uh, they open up the ironic result the ironic result whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves. There's irony. They harden themselves. So you have the cause, the display, and the result of this divine hardening. And they, they divide their scripture support into six areas. First of all, they support the cause. Then, with four different lines of support, they support the display. And then finally, they support the result. All right, first of all, the just cause. Ungodly men, whom God for former sins does blind and harden. They appeal to Romans chapter 1, a passage that in the providence of God, I'm going to read this morning in worship. They appeal to Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28. You notice that verse 24 of Romans 1 starts with therefore. Therefore God gave them over to the desire of their hearts. So what did they do in order to receive this divine abandonment and wrath? What did they do? Well, they suppressed what they knew about God and creation. Although they knew from creation his eternal deity and power, they suppressed it. They refused to acknowledge the creator. And so God gave them over. And again, in verse 26, it says, on account of this, God gave them over to disgraceful passions. And then verse 28 says this, and just as they didn't approve to have God in knowledge, God gave them over to an unapproved mindset to do inappropriate things. So that the just cause of this is their rejection and suppression of the general revelation that God has given them in creation. They see God revealed in creation. 
and they hate what they see, and they refuse to acknowledge it, and they suppress it. And for this reason, God gives them up. This is the just cause. It says that they may be without excuse. That they may be without excuse. God is a righteous judge. The behavior of the wicked is inexcusable. They suppress what they know to be true about God. And for this reason, he does give them over to hardening and abandons them to their own ways. They also cite Romans 11, 7 and 8. What then? That that which Israel seeks for, that he obtained not. But the election obtained it, and the rest were hardened. According as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, unto this day. They reject the revelation that God gives them. They don't only reject, in Romans 1, general revelation, but they reject special revelation. They rejected the word of God. They rejected the gospel of Christ. They rejected the preaching of John and Jesus. They rejected the special revelation that came from God. And when people reject God's general revelation and God's special revelation, God is just and they are without excuse when he leads them to their own ways and their own sins and hardens them for their sins. Which brings then to the sad and tragic display, the sad or tragic display. And the confessions list and support four ways, four ways in which scripture displays this judicial hardening of the wicked. It says withholding and then withdrawing and then exposing and then abandoning. The hardening takes place through withholding, withdrawing, exposing, abandoning. These are the the ways in which the scripture displays this tragic judicial hardening. We read first of all about withholding. From them he not only withholds his grace, whereby, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding, but then withdrawing, the next phrase, but sometimes also withdraws the gifts which they had, and then exposing. And the next phrase, exposes them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin. And finally, abandoning. And withal, gives them over to their own lusts. Withholding, withholds his grace. Withdrawing, withdraws gifts. Exposing, exposes them to such objects as their corruption makes the occasion of sin. And abandoning. And withal, gives them over to their own lusts. God gave them up. So first of all, how do they support the idea that sometimes he withholds grace? In Deuteronomy 29.4, we read, But Jehovah has not given you a heart to know, and eyes to see, and ears to hear, 
unto this day. He withheld a heart to know and eyes to see and ears to hear. Well, how do they support the idea of withdrawing gifts? From Matthew 13 and verse 12. For whosoever has, to him shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But whosoever has not, from him shall be taken away, even that which he hath. Well, how do they support the idea of exposing them to such objects as their corruption makes an occasion of sin? But Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30 is a passage they cite about Sihon, king of Heshbon. And we read, But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for Jehovah your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into your hand as at this day. So he gave him opportunity to start a war with his people. And he used that in order to bring judgment upon him. And again, 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 12 and 13 is another passage that they cite to support this. Exposing them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin. And Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? Speaking to the prophet. And he answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you'll set on fire, and their young men... You'll slay with the sword, and you'll dash in pieces their little ones and rip up the women with child. Hazel said, but what is your servant who has put a dog that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, Jehovah has showed me that you'll be king over Syria. So he opened up an opportunity for this man to be king. It served as the occasion for great evil and sin. His, his own corruption made that occasion uh, made that occasion the means of uh, great wickedness and sin. And then abandoning. In Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12, the confession cite this passage. It says, But my people did not hearken to my voice, and Israel would none of me. So I let them go after the stubbornness of their heart, some translate it lust. So I let them go after the stubbornness of their heart and withal gives them over to their own lust. They didn't want to listen to me. They wanted nothing to do with me. And so I let them go after the stubbornness of their heart that they might walk in their own counsels. And again, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. And with all deceitfulness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they didn't receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God will send them a strong delusion that they might believe a lie, that they might all be judged. Why? Who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Because they rejected God's special revelation, they rejected the truth, they loved wickedness, God sends them strong delusion. He gives them over to their own lusts and to the influence of the world and of the devil. And here is the, finally, the last thing that they support is the ironic result. And so it comes to pass, and so it comes to pass, we read, that they harden themselves 
under those very means of grace that God uses for the softening of others. Now, it's interesting that the Westminster Confession cites to support this Exodus 7.3 and then Exodus 8.15 and 8.32, where, whereas our Confession of Faith only cites the last two passages, but it is, I think, important that you get the foundation first. And the Westminster Confession and Assembly, inciting the support, starts with Exodus 7.3, which says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So this paragraph, this entire paragraph, is about God hardening sinners. And the last point that they make is that, ironically, when God hardens them, they harden themselves. So the Westminster Confession quite rightly starts by quoting Exodus 7.3, that I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then they also cite this. Here's the ironic result. Verse, chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was rest, but he hardened his heart and didn't hearken to them, as the Lord had said. Ironically, when God hardens people, they harden themselves. Which is the point. And Exodus 8.32. And Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. Ironically, it results that the very things that God uses to soften others are the things that, that sinners use to harden themselves when God hardens them. So what does God have to do to harden somebody? And the answer is absolutely nothing. Just has to leave them to themselves and let them do what they want and withdraw the restraining influences of his common grace. And when he does, they harden themselves. What does God have to do to people to make them hard? Absolutely nothing. Just let them be. And they harden themselves. And the irony of it is that they harden themselves under the very means of grace that God uses to soften other people. And so the writers support this in the New Testament by appealing to two other passages. They appeal to 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, which says, For we are a sweet savor of Christ unto God, in them that are saved and in them that perish. The very same message, the very same smell that God uses to save some is the instrument by which others harden themselves. We are a sweet savor of Christ to God in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one, them that are saved, uh, them that perish, a savor of death to death. To the other, those that are saved, a savor of life to life. Who's sufficient for these things? 
And finally, 1 Peter 2, verse 7 and 8. For you therefore that believe is the preciousness, but for such as disbelieve, the message of Christ, the story of Christ, for you it's precious, but for unbelievers, the stone which the builders rejected, the same as made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble at the word. The very word that God used to save us and soften us, they trip over it and harden themselves. They stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they were also appointed. Because God ordained before the foundation of the world that they would harden themselves. So this is the moral discrimination featured in the confession. The moral discrimination in God's providence toward the righteous and God's providence toward the wicked. He chastens his children by sometimes leaving us to our own remaining corruptions for a season with the motivation to humble us and sanctify us. And everything in our lives, therefore, works together for our good. But, but the wicked because they suppress the truth that they see and have revealed to them in general and special revelation, and they suppress it and they reject it justly, God leaves them to their own ways. He withholds saving grace. He withdraws sometimes gifts that they had. He gives them occasions, wide open doors to use their position or opportunity for gross sin. And ironically, the very means of grace that he uses to save others, they use to harden themselves. Sad, is it not sad? Tragic. Tragic. Well, it brings me finally to the redemptive focus of providence, which is the church. In paragraph 7, at one time I outlined this a little differently. I, this is in the, in the back of the book on page 673. I outlined it a little differently. I also said that this is another kind of discrimination, so discrimination between society in general and the church in particular. I suppose it's true. But there's a little more going on here. So I made it a major heading. And I call it now the redemptive focus of providence. And in paragraph 7, which also comes from the Westminster Confession, both in what it says and how they support it. As the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures, so after a more special manner it takes care of his church and disposes all things to the good thereof. Providence has a redemptive focus. God always has his eye on the church. In order to support this, they refer to two passages in the Old Testament and one in the New. First of all, Isaiah 43, verses 3 to 5. For I am Jehovah your God, the Holy One of Israel your Savior, 
I have given Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your stead. Since you have been precious in my sight and honorable, I have loved you. Therefore, I'll give men in your stead and peoples instead of your life. Don't be afraid. Fear not. I am with you. I will bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west. So it's talking about God's purpose in history with regard to his people and how the, his people are, are with whom he is in covenant are is his people are the special focus of his care in providence. And then they also appeal to Amos chapter 9 verses 8 and 9. Behold, the eyes of the Lord Jehovah are upon the sinful kingdom, and I'll destroy it from off the face of the earth, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says Jehovah. For behold, I'll command, and I'll sift the house of Israel among all the nations, like as grain is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least kernel fall upon the earth. In other words, it's an illustration of the special care that God has. Even when he judges the nations for sin, he takes special care for the preservation of the godly in the earth. And then they cite one passage in the New Testament, which is 1 Timothy 4 and verse 10. For to this end we labor and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who was the Savior, or some translated preserver, of all humanity or all men, especially of them that believe. Now that passage is somewhat obscure and somewhat debated, but the idea as they take it is that the providence of God takes care of all his creatures and it has a special focus, which is redemptive, which is upon his people and taking care of them. And that is generally true. And if you translate it preserver, which means that in common grace he preserves the life of all human beings and he especially takes care of and preserves his people, it does support the idea. They might have cited Matthew 10, you're of more value than many sparrows. Many New Testament passages where scripture affirms his special care for all his elect in the preservation of the church. Okay, I'm done for today.